Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio with myself Anya, George. Good morning. And we have Chris Woods in the studio. G'day. <laughs> hey, it's the 30th of April. Is that the last day of the month? Uh, is it tomorrow? I think it is. Yeah. Can you punch the last day of the month? No, That's you can't do thing. that. Really? I, didn't, I never agreed to that. Okay. I never agreed well, to that. What does that even mean? Is this an Australian tradition that I'm not aware of? It's a huge tradition. It's, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it goes back to primary school. <laughs> I've right? literally not heard of it since primary school. So well done, George. <laughs> Bring it back. That out there. Yeah. <laughs> this Tuesday <Old> morning. <laughs> We've got a huge show today. We do. We do. Every Monday we're like, we have nothing on for tomorrow. And then Monday night we're like, oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I think we have to acknowledge the fact that, you know, we have so much help from Tuesday Breakfast crew who aren't necessarily in the studio Mm -hmm. with us. Yeah. Uh, Particularly this week, Lauren has just been incredible. So thank Incredible. you, Lauren, for thank helping you, Lauren. us out for thank today. Thank you, in absentia, Lauren. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so should we talk about what we've got coming up? Yeah, yeah. So first up, we'll have Chris Woods. Chris Woods is um, Crikey's morning reporter and a freelance science, political and immigration journalist, and they'll be joining us to talk about what's happening in the world And should we also say he's moving to? Uh, No, we 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 cannot say anything. Cannot say anything. Nothing is happening. No, I think we can. I'm I'm sure they'll understand. But I I I might keep it under wraps. You know what? Yeah, suspend the suspense. You can just imagine the possibilities. Yeah, nothing good is happening. After Chris, we'll be talking to Georgie Port, who's a community development worker, LGBTIQA plus activist and disability advocate living in the Goulburn Valley region. And she'll be joining us to talk about GV Pride and everything rural queer living. Awesome. Mm. And then after that, we've got Alana Lenton who is, uh, I, I would say, Tuesday Breakfast favourite. Yes. Someone yes. that we had on summer school was incredible. Mm. Um, Eli Linton is an Associate Professor of Cultural Studies and Social Analysis at Western Sydney University, President of the Australian Critical Race and Whiteness Studies Association and Member of the Institute for Culture and Society. Mm. And we'll be talking about, I guess, the last couple of weeks and months mm. of hate, Attacks and mm. violence and how to contextualise that in terms of racism and other political issues mm. currently. Yeah. 
And at 7.45, we've got a very special guest coming into the studio, I believe. Another Tuesday breakfast fave. Another Tuesday breakfast fave, Candy. Candy, Candy, Candy. <laughs> Candy's coming in to talk about her um, tour, Australian Booty, <laughs> um, which sounds incredible, has gotten incredible reviews. So um, she'll be talking about what that is and how it started and when the show is and just having her in the studio itself is a huge, huge delight for us. Yeah, so we're really looking forward to that. Very exciting. Um, then at about eight, we've got Francesca, who is um, coming in to talk about the Migrant Workers Forum that's happening tonight um, and about the uh, Migrant Workers uh, Workforce Task Report. I think that's what it's called. Um, just uh, talking about how... Migrant workers are underpaid and undervalued and um, some of the key recommendations from the report and how to move forward from here. Cool. Very important topic. And lastly, we'll be joined on the line by Jamila, who is a Perth-based, self-produced, new soul R&B artist. She's just had a new track come out called Bloom, and she's going to be touring. So we'll be talking about that and her influences, Nina Simone being one of them. Mm. I'm pretty excited to hear about that as well. Mm. Should we jump straight into some headlines? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Um, it sounds like you guys have an, a very packed day morning, so I'm going to try and be as fast as possible. I'm going to run through. Uh, <laughs> just let it all out. He does. Uh, so last night was the first leaders' debate, and um, it was Bill Shorten, Scott Morrison in Perth in front of an audience of 50 undecided voters. Uh, Bill Shorten crushed it by the sounds of it. He got over, I think, like 52% of the audience on side, uh, 25% for Scott Morrison, 25% remained undecided. And a lot of that was on the back of uh, the last few days, well, the last couple of weeks, Labor has just been blitzing policy announcements. They've um, they've got a bit of money on their side because they've announced, and they've had these for years, but they've got a few tax reforms that largely hit uh, the upper class, which in my opinion is very fair. And with that money, they're going to be funding things uh, like childcare services, um, childcare work, uh, pay rises, uh, domestic violence um, initiatives. Uh, oh God, so much. Sorry, there's been a lot. The last there's like every day it's a new announcement. So mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, anti-cancer pa- packages, um, indigenous health stuff. Like yeah. it's actually banning conversion therapy. Banning or, conversion yeah. therapy. Yeah, uh, there's been like a lot of genuinely. They they even have some like halfway decent refugee policies. Mm-hmm. Still not great. Still not closing the camps, but they're they're getting there. Um, uh, so yeah, that was that was last night. That seemed to have won a lot of undecided people over. Although some polls are showing that it's still a tightening race. So TBD. Mm. Uh, amongst all that, there's a lot of controversy at the moment over the fact that the Liberals will be pre- preferencing Clive Palmer's party, which uh, has just he spent. I think we talked about it last week. He spent a shitload of money, like fifty million dollars, on ads with him doing a thumbs up. No policies. Look at his website. There's nothing there. It's just like oh, make Australia great stuff. Like it's not. There's nothing there. It's just brand recognition. I think people, some people are pissed off oh that the goodness. major parties have yeah. disappointed them. They've, there's a lot of legitimacy there, but Clive Palmer offers nothing. There is nothing up there. Uh, but he will get a decent part of the vote just because he spent $50 million on signs, mm-hmm. um, uh, which means... And then he also owes a bunch of... Part of that at the moment is that he owes a bunch of Queensland nickel workers in Queensland uh, $7 million. He owes the government $70, $70 million, so it's all very hypocritical that he's spending this money to be a politician. Mm. Um, 
and Scott Morrison has had some feedback because of that. So uh, there is there's a bit of flack there. The Nationals will be preferencing One Nation, which is just as terrible in my opinion. But um, that's uh, that's going to be blowing up a little bit today because the, the Nationals will announced that this morning. Uh, there's another. Um, Oh, and I think Pauline Hanson is a controversy as well. Her her Queensland leader was caught um, touching a dancer in a strip club in America and using a lot of racial and sexual slurs. So he sounds like he's gone today. Uh, so that's political stuff. There's mm. a lot of stories this, there this morning. Uh, very depressing story. Uh, Anya and I were talking about this earlier, mm. that um, the Queensland police have launched an, yet another attempt to block compensation to a domestic violence victim uh, she, uh, after basically they, um, she was forced into hiding after her details were accessed by a senior constable who then leaked that to her abusive former partner. Mm-hmm. So it's entirely the police's fault, but they continue to uh, try and take money from this woman. Uh, more at the moment, they spent more money um, pursuing this claim that she all she wanted was the money that she needed to leave to mm. to get out of the house. It was like a hundred thousand dollars or something in a tribunal, and um, they fought it every step of the way. And yeah, you're every right. They step. spent more money fighting yeah. this than actually paying her out, and now they're appealing it. Yeah, yet another appeal, so she can't get that money back that she yeah. needs. And um, also, one of their arguments this time is that the judge used the argument of that she's a domestic violence. Uh, the police are saying that that was irrelevant information in the judge's ruling. That the, the fact that she was mm. a domestic violence victim, uh, they, was, they they are saying that that is irrelevant to what they did, which is leaking the the data of the domestic violence violent victims mm. uh, abusive ex-partner so it's all deeply horrific mm. um, uh, oh right. god and um, sorry this is going to be quite jarring because I had one positive story left uh, or at least funny in my opinion but Avengers Endgame has made like about roughly one and a half billion dollars in like three days which crushes all previous records it is sold out everywhere last week, I know, because I had to book, like, a day in advance because I wanted to see it with some friends. I got the final four tickets. But, yeah, they, it made, like, half a million dollars, half a billion dollars in China in one night. Like, it's, it's breaking every record ever. It will be, bar none, the biggest film of all time. It's uh, pretty wild. Avengers Endgame. That is ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, but also, yeah, I have to go watch it at some point. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's wild. Three hours, though. So, you yeah, know. Yeah. Make sure you go to the toilet. Before. Please. Yeah. yeah. You will have to. <laughs> don't drink anything that day. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Sorry I, I blurted all that out. It no, is, that, that it was is a, election. A marathon, season. indeed. And yeah. I feel like we've got everything out of um, out of that leaders' debate yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you both for having me. It has been a pleasure as always. Before the government started turning back boats in 2013, around 10,000 Tamils arrived seeking refuge in Australia, fleeing from the Sri Lankan government. On Saturday, 4th of May, we invite you to a film screening of No Fire Zone at 6.45pm at RMIT Cinema Theatre. The cinema is located at Building 80, 455 Swanston Street, opposite the RMIT tram stop. This award-winning documentary about the war helps answer why Tamils fled to places like Australia and why it is not safe for them to return. This event is co-hosted by Tamil Refugee Council and Dr Liam Ward from RMIT's School of Media and Communication, supported by 3CR. Subscribe now at 3cr.org.au.
My name is Ian Ham, and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family, and even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum, and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me, and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au. A 3CR supporter. We Need to Pay the Rent is a fundraiser for warriors of the Aboriginal resistance featuring the Pretty Littles, Worst Nurse, Ute Root, No Sister, Face Face and a heap more. Come join us on Kulin Nation land to give back. It's well overdue. We need to pay the rent. Saturday, May the 18th at the Tote from 4pm. Tickets $20. Available from the Tote website, thetotehotel.com. Free or discounted tickets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Contact organisers online to arrange. A 3CR supporter. for human rights, indigenous sovereignty and climate justice. Our destination is Manus Island. Join us for the Freedom Flotilla. Sailforjustice.org. Get on board. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Um, you're here in the studio with George and myself, Anya, and also Chris, who just would not stop talking at me. Yeah. Oh, my God. Sorry, I'm back. <laughs> uh, Rick, stuff up. Uh, next up, I'm very, very pleased to be talking to Georgie Port. Georgie Port is a community development worker, LGBTIQA plus activist and disability advocate living in the Golden Valley region. Thank you so much for joining us today, Georgie. Good morning, no worries. You sound very, uh, very pleasure. sprightly at 7.10 in the morning. <laughs> I actually got I got up about half an hour ago just to like start talking to the cat so that my voice didn't sound like I just got out of bed. So, um, yeah, like I have half an hour ago, my voice would have been a little bit sleepier, but now I'm not too bad. Amazing. Um, Georgia, you're the co-president of GV Pride. Um, tell us about this organisation. Um, so, yeah, so the um, Golden Valley Pride is a volunteer-run organisation. Um, we've actually been running in Shepparton for 14 years mm-hmm. um, this month, actually, which is really exciting. So I've been the president of GV Pride for the last five years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, we have 12 spots on our committee and uh, 10 of them are filled currently, all volunteer-run and led, um, all community-run and led, which is really cool. Um, the idea of the organisation is to be a social and support network and group for people. Um, We run monthly events, um, if not more than once a month, um, to offer people the opportunity to connect with other LGBTI people from across the region, come together and share a meal or go for a coffee or um, host a fun event. Um, And yeah, like I think it's a really vital part 
of being a part of a, a community, um, especially a queer community, because mm. often people can, uh, I guess, living also in a regional area, mm. um, feel quite isolated too. So having the opportunity for people to um, meet new people and make new friends is really cool. Um, it was one of the best things that I ever did when I joined GV Pride. Mm. Uh, I was feeling very isolated myself. And when mm. I joined, I met so many people. A lot of them are my closest friends right now. Mm. So, um, yeah, so I feel really passionate about the opportunities that we have as an organisation to continue to do uh, great work within the community to offer, offer people the opportunities to um, continue to connect and yeah we're like I said we've been going for 14 years this year so it's very exciting for us yeah yeah absolutely and you know speaking about isolation I guess there's this you know conception or misconception that regional and rural areas often have a reputation for being hostile to queer people especially those who are very visibly queer and um you know, it can make community and specialised support networks like yours even more important than in urban areas. What are your thoughts on this? Is that true? Uh, yes and no. Mm. I think for myself, I actually grew up in a smaller town than Shepparton, where I currently live. So for me, uh, moving to Shepparton kind of felt like uh, I'm moving, you know, to a bigger place. Um, mm. But I think when I reflect on perhaps how I felt when I was younger living in a smaller town, um, I definitely would have felt quite isolated and maybe a little bit hostile. I think that I, since I've been living in Shepparton for 11 years this year, I've seen a lot of um, growth. Mm. Um, I've seen quite a lot of change, like community perceptions now with, you know, like access to the media that shows us that LGBTI people are, you know, no different from other non-LGBTI people. Um, the representation that we currently have, which is really awesome. Mm. Of course, we always need more, but um, we do have some representation. I think that's really helped change some perceptions. Mm. Uh, I do think, though, that in an area like Shepparton, it's often quite a conservative values kind of place. Um, there is a lot of religion that comes into it. Mm-hmm. But I also think that uh, people have the ability to put aside the differences that they, you know, perhaps have or, you know, if they don't like something, that doesn't necessarily mean that they hate someone else that doesn't mm-hmm. like the same thing as them. I think that as a community, we're very good at recognising difference but also moving forward as a village of people. Um mm-hmm. But yeah, I think, like like I said for myself, like that's my personal perception. I know that also, though, um, as a person that identifies as a, a lesbian, that's, you know, like I have the opportunity to also um, kind of blend into the community a lot more than perhaps some of my other LGBTI um, community members in my life. Because mm. I think that when you think about people that are um, same gender attracted, so people that identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, pansexual, mm. um, your attraction is only one facet of who you are as a person. Mm. But for somebody who's, for example, um, trans or gender diverse, um, that's something that's so vital to who they are and their identity. So it's not something that a lot of trans or gender diverse people can easily hide or shy away from. Yeah. Um, and we wouldn't encourage them to do that, but then, again, for them, that could create, yeah, a lot of hostility, um, and that in turn leads to a lot of fear around perceptions and, um, and of course, yeah, like I said earlier, isolation, I guess. Yeah. And um, in terms of that, do you think there are certain challenges that queer people might face in regional or rural areas that they wouldn't necessarily in a place like, you know, in Melbourne, for example? Uh, yeah, I think... Like I said, I think it would differ on where you live, but mm-hmm. um, I think that there's a lot of perception uh, from mainstream community that a place that's like a big city like Melbourne or Sydney um, are a lot safer for queer people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that 
that's not necessarily true. Like I think you look at it from a twofold kind of concept. So on one hand, the opportunity to blend in and perhaps not stand out in a place like Melbourne, where which is so, like you walk down, you know, Burke Street in Melbourne and there's people of all different walks of life. So as an LGBTI person, you wouldn't necessarily stand out. You might still, um, but you would perhaps feel more comfortable to be yourself down there. But at the same time, um, I have had, you know, like known people throughout the last 11 years living in Shepparton that have moved to Melbourne and felt more isolated than ever mm. due to the fact that there were so many people in the city that they couldn't find a community right. of people to connect with. Yeah. And I think for me, like, that's what I, um, you know, like it's, I don't think it's a fear that people have, but I think that having the opportunity to connect with other people mm. um, is so vital to us as human beings. And uh, that's one of the things I love so much about Shepparton, not even just in the queer space, but in the, um, you know, the community overall. Mm. There's so many people that um, offer the opportunity to connect with each other. Uh, so, mm. yeah, so perhaps, but... Um, I think it would depend on each person individually and um, now I see a lot of people that perhaps go to Melbourne or Sydney or somewhere else, one of those bigger cities to study but then also do come back to Shepparton mm. or um, we talk to people that have lived in Shepparton in the past and they're so impressed in the fact that we have a visible um, community here in Shepparton of people that, you know, are just going about their everyday lives and they think that's fantastic and I just think, you know, that's us living our lives. But I think for people that have perhaps lived here and have moved away, mm. for them to be able to see that the community has, you know, grown and evolved mm. in a way that there's less discrimination and less stigma around being an LGBTI person, I think that's really good to show them. But, mm. of course, that doesn't take away from, you know, there is still stigmatization and discrimination it's just um, I guess I'm a bit of an optimist so I like to think yeah. see things in a more positive light yeah absolutely and Shepparton from what I've heard is a fairly multicultural area and you're an activist and community development worker in that sort of a space how does this diversity inform the work that you do I think that when you live in a multicultural um, place like Shepparton mm. you have to be quite across um, like the intersectionality that goes amongst any community. Like when I think about um, the LGBTI community, it's not just made up of, you know, like white, cisgendered people. There's so many different types of people that um, encompass and are a part of the queer community. And I think for myself, like it, I've, um, I do a lot of learnings and personal reflection and try my best to understand what it would be like um, to be a person that, you know, is a refugee or asylum seeker that's also LGBTI or mm. um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander that's also LGBTI. Like I myself am not those things. So I guess for me, I can only try to think about or listen to the community um, and understand for them what it's like. Mm. I think that intersectionality is not something that people often really think about. Mm. Um, they only see you as one thing or, <clears throat> excuse me, you're only perceived as one or one thing, you know, like the way you look or the religion that you practice or the fact that you're queer, mm. um, you know, or the fact that you have a disability, all of those things mm. um, can be things that people just assume that you are and then they forget about the other parts of you. Mm. And so I think for myself, yeah, as a worker... And also as a volunteer in the community, um, we just try to do our best to ensure that there's um, safe spaces for people of all, you know, backgrounds across all facets of diversity. Mm. But at the end of the day, too, I think the outlining thing for us is making sure that uh, there's cultural safety for a, a queer person. But I guess then when you think about cultural safety for a queer person who might also have all of these different layers of intersectionality, of that course. becomes quite a complex thing. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, speaking of intersectionality, um, I, I've heard and read that GB Pride makes a point of holding dance classes for older queer people and providing grants to LGBTIQ groups who may not attract other grants money and, you know, promoting other inclusive activities like that. And you yourself are also a disability rights advocate. Um, what are your thoughts on the import, importance of inclusivity and conscious design in activism and community building? Um, yeah, so uh, uh, last year we had some extra funding and we did run some LGBTI seniors, what we call the Seniors Dance Club, mm. which is open for elders but also like whoever wanted to dance and it was really fun. Um, and yet we do, we actually are quite privileged in the fact that um, as a, um, a registered charity we have the opportunity to give out um I don't like when we receive donations, we can give that money out to our community, mm-hmm. which is really cool. So I guess we're very lucky in that sense. I think um, there's lots of things that come into play when we think about, you know, like how we need to work within the community. Mm-hmm. As a person that I guess has my own layers of intersectionality, you're often thinking about making sure that all people are included. Mm-hmm. Um, and also from my background in community development, and I've had a very, uh, very good mentor through my last you know, 10 years or so, um, who has taught me a lot of things around ensuring that all people from all age ranges and all walks of life are included in the community. So I think um, that we have people that are part of Goulburn Valley Pride that are in their 20s, um, like myself, and then we have people that are a part of Goulburn Valley Pride that are, you know, as old as in, like, the, you know, over 65. Um, mm-hmm. So I think for us it's so important that we make sure that you know, like I said, like all facets of the community are included in events that we run and we make sure that we, you know, we try to um, encompass different cultural um, aspects of the community as well. I think that we also are quite good at not just running queer events. Like mm. we ensure that our events are for all of the community because as we know, like we never would have got marriage equality in Australia if we didn't have our allies supporting us. So for me, I think it's so important to, um, of course, highlight the great parts of the LGBTI community, but also really think about all of the different people that make up that community Mm -hmm. and what also encompasses their life and then how we can embed that into the work that we do within the community, um, I guess within my work life and my volunteer life. Beautiful. That's such a beautiful note to end on as well. Thank you so much for coming on today, George and all the best. No worries, my pleasure. Have a good morning. Thank you. That was such a great interview. So important for us to have those conversations that get outside of the city. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I want to follow that up with a track. Yeah. Can we also do a quick shout-out to Lauren Bull? Yes, Lauren Bull, who organised for this incredible chat. Thank you. We love you. So I just found out something incredible the other day. Yeah. Which I think I'm very, very late to the game, but that Zinzi Okenyo is queer. Oh. Did you know that? No. And she's also an actor. I've been watching her in this TV series. Oh, an um, actor. An yeah. actor, <laughs> yes. Um, so I think it's probably a good time to play an Okenyo track. Uh, this track is called Woman's World. The back professor, some folks saying companies that really own
You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR, racing through today because we have a very big show. On the line, we've got Alana Lenton, an Associate Professor of Cultural Studies, Cultural and Social Analysis sorry, at Western Sydney University, President of the Australian Critical Race and Whiteness Studies Association and Member of the Institute for, Cultural, for Culture and Society. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Alana. So... Let's get straight into it. On the weekend, on the last day of Passover, a white supremacist attacked a synagogue in San Diego, killing one person and wounding three others. From your perspective, how have we gotten to a point where we're seeing this kind of high-profile, violent, targeted attacks occurring more and more frequently? Uh, thanks. First, I'd like to just um, you know, let everybody know that I'm speaking from uh, unceded sovereign Gadigal territory. Um, before I get into the question, I know you don't have that much uh, time. So, yeah, the, the attack on the synagogue in San Diego, which came exactly six months after the attack on the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh, which killed 11 people, um, you know, I was, I was going to say it came as a shock, but obviously it didn't come as a shock within the context of the recent events in Christchurch and the massacre there of 50 people by an Australian far-right-wing terrorist and self-proclaimed eco-fascist, um, because, of course, the terrorists uh, on this day cited the Christchurch massacre as a kind of a motivator. And we also know that the same person had um, tried to set fire to a mosque recently um, and was found online on, I think it's 8chan, talking about this. So, you know, what I'm trying to say with that is that we need to understand the rise in anti-Semitic hate attacks within the context of a, the growing um, of growing Islamophobia also. And I think it's necessary to connect these two things together, um, which I don't think we're doing enough. Um, I also think that we have um, a tendency to sideline anti-Semitism and not to talk about its impact as a kind of a grand or meta-narrative that drives a lot of kind of white supremacism today and always has done. So, for example, Jews are set up in this white supremacist um, worldview as the kind of the fomenters of all of the ills of white society. So Jews are responsible primarily for migration um, and and for also the, the ills of, as I think Steve Bannon put it, the little guy. And so you'll see a lot of open talk, and I'm not talking only about within white supremacist groups, but open talk. Um, among mainstream politicians of, for example, the influence of George Soros, who, for those of you who don't know, is a Hungarian-born Jewish philanthropist who has funded or continues to fund a lot of kind of progressive, social democrat-oriented um, organizations and institutions and universities and so on. Um, and he's very often named as a kind of a reason for why we must attack uh, the Jews. Within the context also of austerity, you get a lot of talk about the influence of Jewish bankers, particularly the Rothschilds, so that old kind of protocols of the elders of Zion type meme in which um, this one family is seen as being, um, as, as being, you know, holding the majority of the world's wealth. And in the context of the kind of the Occupy movement set up of the 99% versus the 1%, you get a very convenient retelling of that story as well as this one Jewish family or perhaps a small Jewish cabal, which is actually the 1%.
Right, so clearly there's a lot of context, and especially historical context, that's really important in terms of contextualising these attacks. Um, and looking at an Australian context, unsurprisingly to many, um, Australia has linked both the Christchurch and San Diego shootings. What are your mm-hmm. thoughts, and I guess you've already sort of touched on this, uh, but on where the far-right movement in Australia is at the moment and where it's headed? Mm. Well, I mean, in terms of research into the far right specifically, I urge everybody to follow the work of Andy Fleming at Slut Bastard because I think his work is absolutely important because he's been tracking uh, the far right and it's all its intricacies for many years now. I'm not an expert on the far right per se, but I do think that there's something very particular about the setup in Australia, which means that Australia has kind of uh, lent itself to being a place which in very... I'm going to say unseen ways really has motivated a lot of policies of, of, of racism over the years. Uh, somebody who's pointed this out many times is the, the, the sociologist Angela Metropolis, who's spoken a lot about how Australia has kind of um, exported its regime of its mandatory detention regime, for example, around the world and has really kind of impacted on how Europe in particular thinks about how to control Migrants. So again, we need to take a kind of a wider picture and look. So, what is the context within which we have rising white supremacism? And the context is not only the longer durée of settler colonial racial rule in this country, right? Which is a white supremacist endeavour. And I think we need to be very clear when we say, when we talk about white supremacism, that's not just fascist extremism. It's the general context of the racial colonial. So, in other words, the country, the setup in which we all exist, right? So that's that's the kind of the meta context. But you have another thing within Australia where mainstream politicians mobilize these discourses of um, of scarcity, right? And the whole kind of the white supremacist fear of the so-called great replacement, you know, that white people are going to become a minority in as they put it, our own country through migration, which again is seen as a kind of a multiculturalist cosmopolitan plot. That's not a right wing, as I say, a far right wing uh, discourse anymore. That's a centrist discourse. And in Australia, you have a lot of things happening. So you'll have seemingly innocuous debates set up. So one week after Christchurch, you had the Ethics Centre, which has uh, you know, former uh, Major General Jim Molan as one of its major funders. Uh, the Ethics Centre um, holds a debate at Sydney Town Hall on the title was something uh, like, should we curb immigration? Okay. And it's set up as a kind of a neutral debate. But obviously within that context, and you have, you know, left-wing people taking the other position. I think the MP and Ali was involved, for example. So setting up in those terms means that, well, it's okay to ask this question because it's just as they would put it, viewpoint diversity, and we're just allowing everybody their freedom of speech in the marketplace of ideas and so on. So again, the context of rising white supremacy, I think, cannot, or violent white supremacy, cannot be detached from government policies and the general attitude we have in this country that there is a threat, and we need to be open about that threat. You know, it's the kind of language that students kind of liberal speak. And if we just talk about it openly, then, you know, we'll be able to convince people that we're right and they're wrong. But unfortunately, all we've seen is more movement to the other side, more extremism, more violence being licensed, in my view, by this kind of liberal marketplace of ideas um, attitude. 
Wow. Yeah, there, there is so much there to unpack, and I wish we had more time to dissect some of those really important points, but I guess that really highlights the, the, the conversations that need to be had around challenging those narratives, which are obviously so pervasive. Mm. Um, but in the interest of time, I'll move on to the next point, which is about the term white fragility, which has been widely discussed. And yes. you, in your article titled White Supremacy, White Innocence and Inequality in Australia, you also mentioned this term white comfort. Can you explain yeah. what this term means and why it's dangerous? Yeah, so I think there's two sides to it, okay? So part of it I've already spoken to. Um, it's within the context of this debating, right? So we need to quell white anxiety. So the notion that's put forward, as I say, by mainstream politicians, mainstream journalists, is not at all a kind of a right-wing, you know, fringe element, is that white... <laughs> Hello, Lana, are you there? Sorry, I think we lost you for a second. Hello? Yes? Yes, sorry. Hello? Okay, you're back, you're back. Uh, would you mind starting some of that point again? Sorry, sure. I think we lost you. No problem. So when I talk about white comfort, there are two sides to the story. One is that this notion that debated in the mainstream or put out there in the mainstream that white people have legitimate fears of replacement, that multiculturalism and immigration, which is presented as having been unfettered, you know, has um, has led to a situation in which white people will become a minority in their own com- in their own country. And so, what we have to do in order to counter this situation is recognise that white people have a right to their own identity politics. And one of the the kind of the biggest um, right I don't know how to even put it. He's a political scientist at Birkbeck College in London. Eric Kaufman has written a book called White Shift in which he talks about, you know, the importance of white identity politics and understanding that white people have a right to organize along the lines of ethnicity, as he would put it, um, and that this is, he clearly says, not racism. It's what he calls racial self-interest. So we need to comfort white people constantly and say... Hello? Yep, sorry. Are you there? Sorry. Uh, we might go to a CSA and be right back. Say, I am sailing, I am sailing on the seas to water. We sail for human rights, indigenous sovereignty and climate justice. Our destination is Manus Island. Join us for the Freedom Flotilla. Sailforjustice.org. Get on board. A 3CR supporter.
I have to get the car service for the big drive on Friday. I'll make sure the kids are ready. I won't forget mozzie spray this time. Oh, and we can't forget to vote before we go. What? The federal election is on Saturday the 18th of May and all Australian citizens age 18 years and over must vote. But if you know you won't be able to make it to a polling place on election day, you may be able to vote early. To find out how, go to aec.gov.au or call 132326. It's our vote and our future. Authorised by the Electoral Commissioner Canberra. A 3CR supporter. Join Self for Justice launch and pedal out from 10am on Saturday for the May on St Kilda Beach, Bunurong Country. Manus, here we come. Bring your own flotation devices to pedal out or join a day sail from St Kilda to Sandringham. Wake up, wake up, it's time for action. 11am, Original Nations Passport Ceremony. 12pm, Barbecue and Yarn. 1pm, Music. 2pm, Lunch and Pedal Out. 3 to 4pm, More Music. This event takes place on the stolen territory of Binurong people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty never ceded. 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Saturday, 4th of May, on St. Kilda Beach. For more information, go to saleforjustice.org. Sale number 4, justice.org. Sale for Justice is a Tricia supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We just had a technical issue. Sorry, listeners, but we're going to jump straight back into that interview with Alana Lenton, who is talking about this, this term, white comfort. Okay. Thanks, Alana. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. So, yeah, I just finished the point. Um, I'm not sure how much you heard, but basically I was talking about this idea of white comfort as having two sides. So the notion is that white people have legitimate fears. And as I was saying, this is an idea in the mainstream. This is not at all something, um, you know, on the fringes of politics at all. It's in mainstream journalism and mainstream politics that white people um, have legitimate fears that need to be quelled. So we need to do things to recognize the fact that white people um, have the right to defend themselves within a context of, you know, unasked for multiculturalism and cosmopolitan attitudes that elites benefit from, but that ordinary white people um, suffer as a result of. And I think this use of the term ordinary um, is very important. Uh, You see it, for example, in uh, Jeff Sparrow's book, uh, Trigger Warnings, where he talks about um, how smug elites kind of are responsible for ordinary people uh, losing out within this kind of atmosphere of multiculturalism and so on. Now, on the other side, the flip side of that, is also a certain degree of self-satisfaction. And I was um, noticing this within the context of my research into um, bystander anti-racism, which is something that some uh, researchers and um, anti-racist activists within Australia have been doing a lot of work on, right? So the idea is that we have to encourage, again, ordinary white people to take a stand when they see racism happening, for example, on a train or a bus or a tram and so on. And I've kind of criticized or critiqued that idea because it kind of really centers the heroics of the white bystander or the white kind of doer within this context, which speaks to this, again, the flip side, that necessity for white people to think of themselves as inherently good without thinking at all about how we not only benefit from but perpetuate white supremacy, particularly within um, a racial colonial settler um, context such as Australia. So, so yes, that's the, the two sides of white comfort. 
Right, yeah, and I guess if listeners are interested in, in um, learning more about that, they can check out your article. Sure. Um, and on to the last question. So images are often shared on the Internet of pyramids of white supremacy or pyramids of racism and violence. And these paint a picture of things like indifference and coded racist messaging, building the foundation for serious widespread violence. However, people still deny that these less serious behaviours are dangerous. Can you explain how these lower level actions produce things like what we saw in San Diego? Yeah, look, absolutely. I just, it was funny because I just Googled this pyramid of white supremacy because I hadn't actually seen it before. Oh, right. I think it was an assumption that I had, but yeah, I mean, it's, for me, it's very obvious that this is the way in which we need to teach how racial rule operates. Um, it does, it's structured within society. That's the kind of a mainstream race critical approach to how we understand racism, not just as something which is about bad attitudes of outlier individuals, but is really structured into how Euromodern or racial colonial states operate, right? And obviously, therefore, race is in operation at every level of society. It's there, as the pyramid rightly says, the conversation or the non-conversation at the dinner table. So when a family member is being racist and you decide not to call it out because, you know, it's more convenient for you not to have to, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of thing. And that's the way in which racism gets uh, perpetuated. And I think that's a very, um, very important way of teaching racism. And I often have a light bulb moment with my students, who are mainly people of color, by the way, who it helps them to understand and to see racism in context where they perhaps were denying that racism was involved in order, you know, for self-preservation, in order to not think that every encounter that they have is racist, right? But to sort of step back from that and to see it as a structural issue rather than something that's about, well, this is a bad person, right? Uh, not in order to excuse the individual racist, but in order to understand that, you know, this is the structure that everybody benefits from and that we all, to a certain extent, um, play a role within. And that, if, as a racialized person, you need to understand where you sit vis-a-vis that, I think, is very, very important. But one thing I wanted to note, which I think is really interesting, in the article that I'm reading about this uh, pyramid, um, one of the students apparently said that they felt attacked as a white person when being presented with this teaching by the by the educator. And I think that's very, very important. And that is something that as educators we encounter a lot, um, this notion that you are attacking me personally. And so the way in which we increase racial literacy in this country has to avoid uh, focusing on white guilt, not just because we want to comfort white people, as I was saying, but we don't, I don't want to comfort any white people, but because white guilt is an extremely negative um, factor in this conversation, right? So, these, so for, for people of color, as, as black feminists have been saying, since the dawn of time, if on top of everything else they have to deal with white people's feeling of guilt and tears, then it's going to be even more difficult to come to an anti-racist solution commonly. Wow, yeah. I mean, as an educator, I'd love to pick your brain more about that, and it seems like a very complex kind of process in terms of having those conversations, particularly in educational spaces. Mm, yeah. um, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us this morning. I think, no you know, like when you came on for summer school, there's just so much to take away and think about. So thank you so much for that. Thanks so much for having me. That was Alana Lenton speaking about so many things, but 
I guess, uh, lots of issues of racism and white supremacy in the context of recent hate attacks. My name is Ruby Susan Mouth, but my pronouns are they. You're listening and to 3CR Radical Radio, and that was Binday with Stella, Rosie and Claudia on... Hello, I'm Liz Wright. Welcome to Are You Looking At Me? and International Day for People with Disability. Today on the show, we meet Trish Maloney and Frank Corbenti, who are some of the others. Did you miss our 12-hour special broadcast for International Day of People with a Disability? Radical disabled programmers discuss the NDIS, Aboriginal rights, creativity, youth access, financial security, parenting, LGBTIQ, intersections and so much more. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash disability day 2018 and listen back anytime. We Need to Pay the Rent is a fundraiser for Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance featuring The Pretty Littles, Worst Nurse, Ute Root, No Sister, Face Face and a heap more. Come join us on Kulin Nation land to give back. It's well overdue. We need to pay the rent. Saturday, May the 18th at the Tote from 4pm. Tickets $20. Available from the Tote website, thetotehotel.com. Free or discounted tickets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Contact organisers online to arrange a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with myself, George, and Anya. We're going to play... I think we can have time to squeeze in a little track. Um, This is Hextet. They have uh, their new album that just came out, and this track is called Gemini. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with myself, Anya, and George. Hey, that Uh-oh. track was Hextet. It was great. Gemini, I'm sorry to any regular listeners that found that a bit jarring. I guess we don't usually play. We have a very specific <laughs> genre of music that we play, but I think that they're definitely worth checking out if you're, mm. yeah. We like to mix things up a little bit. Yeah. Mm. We were going to talk to Candy Bowers um, today. Uh, unfortunately, Candy's not able to join us uh, anymore, which is really sad, but um, she will be joining us next week, so it will happen. You just have to wait for a little longer. Um, so in the meantime, we might play you another track. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. This is from Arlo Parks, and it's called Cola. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. That was a fantastic track. 
Do you like it? Yeah, what's it called? Um, the artist is Arlo Parks, oh. and it's called Cola. She's got lots of great tracks. Yeah, she's really cool. It's gorgeous. Mm. Thanks. Mm. Next up, we're going to be talking to Francesca from Nomit. I'm very, very excited to talk to Francesca um, about the uh, Work in Progress 2019 Forum. Thank you so much for joining us today, Francesca. Thank you for having me. Hi, Anya. Hi, George. How are you? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> We're doing really well. Um, Francesca, tell us about yourself, about Nomit, how you got involved with the organization, everything. Well, absolutely, yes. Uh, so Nomit is a small, independent, not-for-profit that's based in Melbourne, mm-hmm. and it was born in 2012. We have incorporated and is completely run by volunteers, as myself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yes, well, we just actually felt as newcomers to Victoria that there was a need somehow to represent what was new, current, contemporary of, you know, the Italian community mm-hmm. in Victoria. Mm-hmm. So after the first steps, we open also to other communities. And the aim is in the future, of course, is to... Becoming a voice for, uh, you know, the, the most communities of new migrants in Victoria, because we've learned from our own personal experience, there, there are more similarities between the new arrivals from Italy and other migrants of the same generation, but from different backgrounds, mm. than there are with Italian migrants themselves who came maybe during, you know, the, after the Second World War, mm. the 50s, the 60s. So it's more, I guess, of a generational thing than mm-hmm. a geographical thing. And, yeah, I mean, I was a founding member, mm-hmm. and now I just help around when, you know, bigger, bigger events come up, like the one that we are organizing tonight. Mm. Tell us about the event tonight. What is it and how did it come about? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So it's happening from 5.30 mm-hmm. at the Trade Hall in Carlton. And this year... We are having the collaboration of the Migrant Workers Center for the first time because we've been organizing this forum for a few years. Uh, and in particular, every year, because of the International Workers Day that's happening, of course, as you know, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So we will talk about migrant workers in Australia, like students or you know, people on temporary visas, mm-hmm. working holiday visa makers. So anyone who is working in Australia, but maybe because of their condition of migrants, are maybe more vulnerable uh, categories of workers in Australia. Mm-hmm. So we will be talking about these issues with, for example, Anthony Forsyth mm-hmm. from RMIT. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been doing this amazing work on labour hire, that recently became a law in Victoria. Then we would have like a hands-on session with Gabriel Marchetti from Jobwatch, mm-hmm. who will be having, you know, this sort of like explaining to the people what to do in case the worker finds himself or herself in a difficult situation. And there will also be a focus on hospitality by Ju Chong Tam mm-hmm. of the University of Melbourne, the law faculty. So it's going to tackle all the issues regarding, you know, how to empower the people to understand what their rights and duties are, Mm. so what they can expect. 
expect and what they're expected to do to, you know, became a, a strong voice in yeah. the labor workforce in Australia, I guess. Mm, sounds fantastic. And I saw yeah, in the... <laughs> I'm really excited. I mean, it's all about empowering people to, yeah. uh, you know, take control of, of their situation, isn't it? And Please come along then. We'll <laughs> yeah. wait for you. Yeah, I'll see you there. <laughs> well, now I can't not come along. So. <laughs> and um, the media release also talked about the Migrant Workers Task Force report, which was mm. released earlier this year. What What is mm. the report and what, what are some of the key recommendations from this report? Yeah, absolutely. So it has been um, a work of three years and uh, uh, it was funded by the government, actually. And um, so it has mainly focused on employment experiences of temporary migrants, like, you know, all the categories that we've talked about. Since in the large part, these appeared to be one of the weakest category in Australia. So the report mm-hmm. concluded that the problem, for example, of um, wage underpayment is uh, pretty widespread. Mm-hmm. So if we look at, you know, the total number of, of workers on temporary visas, mm-hmm. uh, maybe 50% of temporary migrant workers might be being underpaid in their employment. So it's a huge, huge Mm. um, issue that has been growing over the years too. So this is the the kind of picture the report made. And the recommendation, uh, there are many of them. So because they were, um, they worked on this thing for uh, three years, they've been interviewing lots of workers and they came up with 22 recommendations. So, um, but basically, the what's in, what's interesting, I guess, is that they uh, they gave as a um, how do you say mm-hmm. they gave the recommendation to, for example, ensuring that market participants are well aware of their entitlements. So. The key things to do are making the people, you know, responsible and understanding about the rules of the workplace. Mm. And secondly, uh, they recommended to improve the role of regulators, Mm. such as the Fair Work Ombudsman, in taking action, for example, to promote compliance. Or also they have... um, um, recommended to for the employees to obtain redress for underpayment, and mm-hmm. also uh, the for, the fourth key that they recommended. Uh, so considering the existing laws and understanding where and how they function, mm-hmm. and if it's appropriate to reinforce, you know, the legislation that's actually you know uh, current in uh in australia so it, it's very interesting read 
Yeah, <laughs> even though yeah. maybe not the simplest of, <laughs> of the reading. Yeah, I had a very um, brief look at the report yesterday and very mm. exciting about expanding um, Fair Work's, uh, uh, I guess, powers and um, yes. also imposing criminal sanctions. I saw something about that as well. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's a crucial part. You're absolutely right. Mm. Um, also, because NOMIT runs a volunteer, like a free advice desk, at mm-hmm. the Italian consulate that's open for every community. We also came across a lot of situations where the worker would be unsure of what to do and they would maybe, um, you know, fear that uh, their, um, their role as immigrants, their capacity to stay in Australia would be affected, for example, mm. if they take action against dodgy employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are all sorts of issues, really, that are related with, you know, uh, I guess migrants or, or refugee or people who are, you know, uh, immigrant workers in Australia. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting because we started talking about these things over the last five years, based also on our, you know, personal own experience and as migrants and. Uh, I really think that over the last years, this issue has been, you know, um, came out mm. and came out to media, came out to also to politics, and uh, it's becoming a very interesting, um, interesting thing to to be involved into discussing because things are going to change because they need to change. Yeah, absolutely. And just one final question, Francesca, about, I guess, the practical um, solution to this. For migrant workers who are currently stuck in this situation where they're getting underpaid, and like you said, a lot of them are too afraid to speak out because they're scared or Mm. confused about how making a complaint could affect their migration status, um, where can they go or who can they contact for help? Yeah, look, there will be uh, uh, all part of the forum mm-hmm. tonight is going to be around this issue in particular, so what to do mm-hmm. when you need to be helped. And there's going to be a speech tonight by Gabriel Marchetti, which is uh, who's, uh, sorry, uh, the principal lawyer of Job Watch. Mm-hmm. And Job Watch is a not-for-profit organization. They work in Victoria, mm-hmm. Tasmania, and Queensland. And what they do is they give the worker the tools to understand the situation they're in and also how to take action. Because, of course, as you said, according to the particular situation that might be different paths, for the migrant to take or for the worker in general, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the most important thing is really to understand that there are tools out there. Mm. There are fantastic organizations such as JobWatch, for example, yeah. but also other, you know, legal legal services, community legal services. They do an amazing job. And it's cool because I guess, I think... Um, uh, events like tonight, what what they do is like they bring together the people that care mm. about these issues and they, you know, start the conversation and, and start the connection between all the people that are involved into this bigger issue 
And of course, I mean, you know, we're stronger together. So yeah. it's cool that we can have the chance to discuss about these um, topics and really come come up with new ideas. Why not? I mean, that absolutely. would be a dream, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today, Francesca. That sounds fantastic. Um, and all the best Thank to the Thank you event. so much. Thank you. It was an honor to be with you guys. You're great. <laughs> and I really hope that all, you know, who are listening and is interested, just please come along. It's a free event. The more, the more, you know, interesting the discussion would be. So, yeah, well, just thank you for the opportunity to speak about our event. Absolutely. Our pleasure. In December 2017, Tanya Day, proud Yorta Yorta woman and much-loved member of the Aboriginal community, was travelling by train to Melbourne. When V-Line staff found her asleep, they called Castlemaine Police and she was removed from the train and charged with public drunkenness. Tanya died 17 days later as a result of head injuries sustained while in custody. This would never have happened had the recommendations of the 2001 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody been implemented. Tanya Day's family is calling for the crime of public drunkenness to be abolished and for the implementation of genuine community health alternatives to incarceration. Please add your support by signing the petition at 3CR Reception, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or online by entering Tanya Day Petition into your browser. My name is Ian Ham, and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family, and even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum, and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me, and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au. A 3CR supporter. I have to get the car service for the big drive on Friday. I'll make sure the kids are ready. I won't forget mozzie spray this time. Oh, and we can't forget to vote before we go. What? The federal election is on Saturday the 18th of May and all Australian citizens age 18 years and over must vote. But if you know you won't be able to make it to a polling place on election day, you may be able to vote early. To find out how, go to aec.gov.au or call 132326. It's our vote and our future. Authorised by the Electoral Commissioner Canberra. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We have one final interview for this morning. On the line is Jamila, a self-produced new soul R&B artist from Western Australia. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. No problem. My pleasure. So you have a new track out. It's called Bloom. It is beautiful and powerful and incredible. Before we sort of Thank talk you more, so much. that's right. No, really, really enjoyed it, and I also want to talk more about your music video as well. But before we talk about that, I'd love to hear about your influences. And I read that your the sort of the influence or the main influencer behind the track is Nina Simone. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, not really musically, but definitely um, the theme behind it. I mean, I it was inspired by me watching an interview. Um, where she was kind of talking about what it means to be a black person and what she was trying to do for black people 
when she was alive. And, um, and, you know, all these themes had kind of been in my mind for a while, but, um, kind of hearing it so obviously made me right bloom after, right, after watching this interview. And it was so important that I ended up putting that interview in the song. Mm, yeah. <laughs> It's it's so cool. I guess, you know, even decades on, Nina Simone is still such an important musician and in terms of bringing in some of those political elements, it's so powerful. She is, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the track and perhaps the sort of the message behind it. Yeah, well, it was just really me talking about my experiences. I think... Um, it's my first song that has been a little bit political. And I think as a black woman growing up in Australia, being a woman of colour has always been a huge part of my identity, whether I liked it or not. And I think I'm very lucky to experience very little like individual racism in my life, but cultural and institutional racism have been something I've definitely experienced. And this is just me talking about it. Yeah, which is, yeah, it's great. And... Um, you is it sort of centered around ideas of beauty standards, womanhood? Is that kind of yeah? The, yeah? Definitely, I think. Um, well, Nina Simone came to me at a time where I was kind of a little bit confused. I was a, a young adult, still feeling a bit unsure about, um, you know, wearing my afro out and wearing anything that was like traditionally African or Trinidadian. And I think um, it, that's kind of because in Australia and a lot of Western countries, the beauty standards are more white and European are put on a, on a pedestal and, and are much more seen as like the, the most beautiful. So um, this is kind of me realizing, oh, that's just the that's just the media, that's just society, and there's so many beautiful ways to be like a powerful, beautiful black woman. And um, I wanted other people, other black women, to know, and um, so that was kind of, yeah, what I wanted to say in bloom. Mm. And it's uh, clearly such an important conversation to have and a story to to represent through music that it can reach other mm. people that might be, like other women and people of colour that might also be experiencing those issues in terms of dating and relationships and feeling like they're devalued or they're seen as less than and kind of knowing that this is actually a structural issue to do with racism in society. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of people when I play it out, so many people come up to me and say, I've experienced this and people don't talk about it and thank you for talking about it, which is the most wholesome like conversations to have come from this song after mm. gigs. <laughs> That's awesome. Does it make you want to write more political tracks? I think I think it does because people find it really important when you're speaking their truth and your own truth and they connect to it. But also it can be a little bit intimidating. I think I've been very lucky with this one that almost all the responses have been positive. Um, but I know it's not always the case sometimes when you do write about things that about marginalisation or about issues that are really controversial sometimes people get upset so mm. 
you have yeah. to kind of find a balance, I guess. But uh, yeah, of course, I would love to write more songs that, and songs that just mean something and will will do something good in the world. Yeah, definitely. And do you think that, I guess, I mean, obviously, living in Western Australia, there might be a different music scene going on there. But in terms of the way things are sort of changing and evolving, do you think that? We are starting to see more artists, more women and non-binary people, uh, people of colour, making music that does talk about these really real experiences. I think we are, um, or I hope we are. I think Perth has a beautiful scene, although it is very small. Um, I do kind of think that there are many like non-binary artists or women of colour in our scene that make music that's very um, accessible. Um, instead of talking about the things that they've been through initially, just it's kind of in a way of like being forgiven for being... Mum, but they're like, oh, I'm doing this really cool music, it's really easy to enjoy, um, which is such a shame because I think that many, many of these people have, like, amazing things to talk about and are so intelligent. Um, but I think it's starting to change, which is awesome, and people are talking about the stories way more. Mm, I guess if there's still those power dynamics and people feel like they have to fit their kind of image into a certain, you know, framework and then that can make you sort yeah. of devalue yourself. And do you, do you think that... Um, like, what is that like for you in terms of navigating spaces that might, you know, like the music industry, which is largely male-dominated and white? Mm, I think I've been really lucky to come into because I've only been playing gigs for a, around almost two years, and um, the scene has been so good since I came into it. And I know it's not always been this way because. I've talked to people that have been in the scene for 10 years and I I can't believe it used to be like a, a, like a, a very different place. Um, but I think I've been very lucky with my experiences and I don't... I think there's only been very strange moments where, um, where I've been kind of booked for being a black woman. Where right. I've, where I've had to be like, oh, I, I don't fit in on this lineup, so I'm going to decline. Sorry, but if you're looking for a woman or if you're looking for someone of colour, here is a heap of artists. But, yeah, I think I've been super lucky and the all the men that I know are just wonderful and it's a very progressive, lovely environment to be in at the moment. Yeah, I guess there is that real kind of tokenism, hey where oh, people yeah, want to uh, be, present yeah. as though they have, you know, representative musicians playing a gig. Yeah, I know. But that's only happened, like, maybe a couple... Uh, yeah, maybe two times, mm. which is good. <laughs> yeah. And I guess I do... Because I, I think something that we see here is... Um, if you play a gig, you have to have, you know, X amount of women and non-binary artists that are playing that evening. Yeah. Um, and I, I wonder if, yeah, maybe that comes into play also with um, people of colour, like, having a certain amount of, like, people, and that sort of feeds into that kind of tokenistic uh, thing that can happen. Yeah. I think it does a little bit. I think it's um, maybe less on people's minds or on the tip of people's tongues, just it definitely comes into play. Like, I think, like, making sure that there's women and non-binary artists in a lineup is, like, 
big priority. Um, and then it's kind of like a secondary, oh, are there any people of colour in this, um, <laughs> at this gig? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, people are trying, which is awesome. Yeah. And so coming back to your new track, Bloom, mm-hmm. people can, our listeners can go and check out your music video, which is awesome. Um, yeah. And it was, yeah, it's such a powerful video. What was it like to shoot? Oh, it was really wholesome. It was so lovely. Um, I got to spend just a whole day with, um, like, was it five? Yeah, five other black women, which was just lovely. I remember walking in um, to the studio in the morning, and it was just this white room, and the director and the film, um, the camera woman was in one room, and then I went into another room, and there was the cast, and... It was just all these black women dressed in black and they were just like kind of picking at their afros and making them, putting them into hairstyles. And um, it was such a wonderful moment because there's not many situations that I get to be in where I'm the majority in the room or I'm just surrounded by black women. Um, so it was super nice and it made me quite emotional just to walk in the room. Mm. Um, but it was really fun. And really supportive, and we had such beautiful conversations about our experiences together. Um, yeah, it was it was a lovely day. Yeah, it sounds like it was an awesome experience, and we'll put up mm. the link to that video on our Facebook page sometime today. And before we play your track, <laughs> um, can you talk about your tour and how our listeners can go and see you? Yeah, well, I'll be on tour from... Oh, from tomorrow. tomorrow Ooh, very out. exciting. Um, and I'm going all over Australia. It's my first really big tour. Um, I start off in Victoria, so I've got a, um, I've got three shows there. I've got second, third, and fourth of May. Um, fourth of May is at Howlabar in Melbourne, which nice. will be yep. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, really excited to come and see you, and we'll also share that information for our listeners. Thank you so Amazing. much for joining us this morning and yeah, sharing your thoughts about women, women of colour in music and we'll play your new track, Bloom, now. Thank you so much. Have a good day. You too. So why am I so insistent upon giving out to them that black blackness, that black power, that black pushing them to identify with You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast. You can check out that track, Bloom, by Jamila on all of the internets. We'll put up some links. Thanks so much to all of our amazing guests today. Up next, we've got Accent of Women. Ayan Shira did some recording from a Treaty Constitutional Recognition Panel organised by Allies Decolonising. We'll see you, or we'll, you'll hear us next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>